Good afternoon and welcome to Telemedicine Liability in a COVID-19 World. Your presenters today are Jeremy Hodder, Supervisor of Risk Management Services at MICA, and Sue Jones, Senior Risk Management Consultant at MICA. We just want to let you know that neither Jeremy nor I have any disclosures to report and we have no conflict of interest in order to present this program today. The objectives for our presentation are to define the CARES Act legislation, discuss the current risks associated with telemedicine, and review strategies to reduce professional liability risk associated with telemedicine. As most of you know, when the coronavirus hit our shores in the early, you know, early February, March, telemedicine had been in use prior that, about 10 to 20% of practices nationwide in hospitals were using telemedicine to some degree or another. However, once we were uh, ordered to shelter in place and businesses were closed and people were furloughed, people were afraid to go out to their doctor's office or to the hospital, telemedicine grew substantially, exponentially actually, in order for people to be able to be cared for. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that, what, what, what you're seeing and reading about up to date and what we expect for the future. Uh, the CARES Act legislation, which came out in March of 2020, is the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act. And although it involved a lot of things, one of the major things it did was allowed for telemedicine to take place. And some of the things that were relaxed during this were that it could be a non-public facing platform. So with HIPAA, it didn't necessarily have to be a HIPAA compliant um, telemedicine platform, as long as you were using it in good faith in order to provide care. And when we say not HIPAA compliant, things like Skype or, um, FaceTime. They are not HIPAA compliant, but we're being able to be used during this pandemic in order for pr providers to provide care. One of the things that CARES Act did say was that you could not use a public facing platform, which would be like TikTok or Facebook or things of that nature. So even though you are allowed to use the Skypes or the FaceTimes right now, we do encourage you, if you're going to continue with telemedicine, to transfer over to a HIPAA compliant platform so that when this pandemic is over, you can seamlessly um, already be continuing to do telemedicine. One of the other things that took place was the location and setting requirements for CMS reimbursement of care were relaxed. Physician or healthcare practitioner um, must comply with all state licensure requirements. So instead of having to be in a place where it was considered where the patient was located, um, they relaxed those those regulations. However, we do um, recommend that you find out what whatever states you are going to be practicing telemedicine in, that not only are you licensed to practice telemedicine in that state, but your uh, medical liability insurance company is also covering you. Um, CMS also is reimbursing for new and established Medicare patients, which means you might have seen, uh, might be seeing patients that were already established in your office in person, and now you're doing telemedicine visits with them, 
However, now you can also establish your patient brand new via telemedicine during this pandemic. And that expansion of telemedicine services is eligible for CMS reimbursement. Just like you would be getting paid in the office, you will get paid right now the same amount for telemedicine visits. President Trump did sign another executive order in August of 2020 that's going to provide for post-pandemic Medicare telemedicine. We're not sure how far that's going to reach, but at least for rural areas, that is what we are hearing and, and reading about. So telemedicine during the COVID-19 crisis is doing quite a few things. One, it's reducing the physicians and healthcare professionals and patients' potential exposure for COVID-19. It's easier to pick up the phone and either call, video text, or do a video conferencing as opposed to having to get into your car and drive to a doctor's office where you might have potential exposure. It's preserving the personal protective equipment, which in the beginning we knew there were lots of shortages and people didn't have enough masks and gowns and gloves and things of that nature. And so we were trying to preserve PPE. My understanding currently is that there is still somewhat of a shortage out there. So again, this is still filling that need. It's also encouraging that six feet social distancing Instead of having a bunch of people sitting in a waiting room waiting to be seen by a practitioner, you can now do your telemedicine visit from the comfort of your own home and the safety of your own home. And it's also helping with continuing care of patients who fear that in-person care, whether it's acute condition or a chronic condition. Another thing it's also doing is letting providers be able to do wellness check-ins with their patients who do have chronic conditions um, that are, they're doing much more frequently than they would be doing if the patient had to come into the office. And again, third-party payers are reimbursing it's the same way CMS is, is that your telemedicine visit right now will be reimbursed for the same amount that your in-office visit is being reimbursed. So the types of telemedicine visits that we're seeing most frequently are screening patients for COVID-19, obviously, assessing low risk or acute or urgent care. <clears throat> obviously, telemedicine is not everything. It's a tool in your toolbox. Um, there are certain things you can do with telemedicine, certain things you cannot. Um, although we've seen some pretty fancy ways people are doing um, histories and physicals, it's not the answer to everything. So you would need to assess, and Jeremy will talk about more about that, about you know, what is appropriate for telemedicine versus what needs to be bumped up to a regular in-office visit or to a specialist. Again, like I said earlier, helping to ma manage the patient's chronic health conditions, you know, that diabetic care, the COPD, or people that you're checking in more frequently um, with than you would be if they were just coming into the office, you know, once every three months or once every six months. It's allowing for a hybrid approach to the inpatient care, as I said. You could do some things telemedicine and some things in-person visits. So it's that tool in your toolbox. It's also allowing for more peer-to-peer -peer medical consultations where you might have a particular patient via telemedicine. You're not quite sure what's going on and you're able to basically bring another provider of care or a specialist in on that telemedicine visit uh, so that you have more consultation with the specialist. And it's also allowing for follow-up and tracking of results and referrals. Licensing and liability coverage. This is probably one of the biggest issues as well as reimbursement moving forward that we'll be waiting to see what happens. Right now, licensure, location of the physician or advanced healthcare practitioner and the location of the patient um, has been relaxed 
especially with your professional medical liability insurance coverage. MICA, as, as most insurance companies, does allow for telemedicine, but you need to be licensed in the state for which MICA does write, and that is Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah. So it's not so much that you have a licensure in the state, you have to make sure that your liability carrier is also has coverage for that state. So if you wanna practice medicine uh, via telemedicine in Florida or New Jersey, you're gonna need to have medical liability coverage as well as your licensure in those states. So there are the insurance considerations you need to take into consideration. Um, and also other things are, do you wanna practice telemedicine in your home state versus multiple states or even if you wanted to practice medicine internationally. So you also, you have to remember that the limits of liability are different in each of the states or counties where you are practicing medicine. And so you'd be responsible for finding out what your limits of liability are. And also your licensure. Licensure in Arizona may be different from licensure in Utah. So you wanna make sure that you're up to speed on the licensure requirements for each state for which you would be practicing telemedicine. Okay, thanks, Sue. Established virtual networks may have established rules as to what you can and cannot do, but always. So, so basically with an established network, there are practical benefits of joining one if you haven't already looked into it, but uh, you know, they have a wider range of patients who may not have access to care, especially in rural, uh, rural areas. Existing networks often have solid broad, broadband infrastructure and lower cost internet. Uh, they use secure HIPAA and HIPAA compliant platforms. It also allows a greater networking between general and specialist physicians and other advanced healthcare professionals locally, regionally, and even nationally. They offer education, advice, and support in the way of things like telemedicine training and technical consultation. The, the limits are if you do join certain networks that provide certain services, there may be limits to those, but obviously if you are thinking of joining, please, please look into it. Physicians and advanced healthcare professionals bear the burden of complying with each state's telemedicine laws. As, uh, as Sue suggested, there are obviously limits to, to where a physician can practice. 48 state boards plus the District of Columbia require that physicians engaging in telemedicine are licensed in that state, in the state where the patient is located. Uh, there's a headline back in late March that uh, the crisis was allowing physicians and other providers to practice freely across state lines. Uh, this generated some interest. Uh, states have waived certain licensure and telemedicine practice requirements, but these certainly differ between states. Um, the suggestion we give is that anyone wishing to practice in another state first check the requirements of the medical boards of that state. And obviously, as again, as Sue suggested, the next step is to check their uh, malpractice insurance carrier's geographical coverage, as uh, they may only cover practice in certain states. We have had many phone calls from our policyholders asking about their patients that are temporarily in another state, such as the winter visitors here that uh, they come, they stay, and then they go back to their originating states. Um, many physicians want to. Um, provide prescription refills for them or see them over telemedicine. But again, practicing the medicine across state lines is tricky. The, the, the Federation of State Medical Boards state, the practice of medicine across state lines is defined to include any medical act that occurs when a patient is physically located within the state and the physician is located outside the state. 
any contact that results in a written or documented medical opinion that, that affects the diagnosis and treatment of a patient constitutes the practice of medicine. Informed consent. Set in statute in Arizona, ARS 36-3602A states that before a healthcare provider delivers healthcare through telemedicine, the treating healthcare provider shall obtain verbal or written informed consent from the patient or the patient's healthcare decision maker. If the informed consent is obtained verbally, the healthcare provider shall document the consent on the patient's medical record. Micah always suggests that the quality of the conversation with the patient regarding risks, benefits, and alternatives of assessment and treatment via telemedicine is paramount, as is the subsequent documentation of that discussion. There are possible risks of telephone or telemedicine telehealth visits, such as insufficient transmission of image or data, delays in diagnosis or treatment related to equipment problems or failures, and a breach of confidentiality or privacy related to transmission of an image or data. Possible benefits may include improved uh, patient access to medical care and decreased risk of spreading or encountering any infectious disease, virus or condition. Possible alternatives may include conducting the visit in person or through another telemedicine technology when medically indicated. Patients or the patient's representative have the right to inspect information documented during the telemedicine visit. Physicians or healthcare professional does not guarantee or assure a specific outcome or result of the telemedicine visit. Patient or the patient's representatives authorizes and consents to the use of telephone or telemedicine technology. And the patient or patient's representative may, may withhold or withdraw consent to telemedicine. Uh, the the date of the patient or patient's representative signature should be documented uh, if applicable uh, or the date that verbal consent was obtained should be documented. In Arizona, informed consent requirements for telemedicine do not apply to emergencies where the patient or patient's representative is unable to consent to the service. The patient is not physically present during the telemedicine encounter or visit. The physician or other healthcare professional transmits images to another physician or healthcare professional serving as a consultant or when the consulting physician is reporting to the treating physician or healthcare professional the, Im the imaging results. An option to, in being able to practice across state lines comes with the uh, Interstate Medical Licensure Compact, where a physician can obtain an expedited license in up to 29 states if they meet eligibility requirements. Caution is advised as some state laws, rules and regulations vary widely regarding telemedicine and medical practice in general, both currently and outside of the public health emergency relaxations. Our physicians are advised to make themselves familiar with specific state laws and their malpractice insurance carriers geographical coverage as previously stated. Our states also have things like different CME requirements and maintenance. From a complaint and investigation perspective, the physician may be investigated by their own board or by any other board within the compact. Um, this can take place individually or through a joint investigation. In a joint investigation, the lead investigative board may be a member board in the member state where the alleged conduct occurred, or the state that initiated the joint investigation, or any member board chosen by the participating member. Any member board may investigate actual or alleged violations of a statute authorizing the practice of medicine in any other member state in which the physician holds a license to practice medicine. 
and any disciplinary action by a disciplining board shall be considered unprofessional conduct and is subject to discipline by the other member boards. Outside of the uh, current pandemic crisis, medical board rules in most states require a physical or medical examination before prescribing a medication or even a medical device. However, most boards also have rules related to telemedicine or telehealth prescribing. The Federal Controlled Substances Act requires an in-person medical evaluation prior to prescribing a controlled substance, again, outside of the current pandemic rules. As I'm sure you're all aware, the, the Controlled Substances Act was, uh, was relaxed um, in January 31st, 2020, and again on March 16th, 2020, when the Health Secretary declared uh, the emergency. This then designated that telemedicine prescribing allowances applies to schedules two to five controlled substances. While the public health emergency remains in effect, physicians and other prescribers registered with the DEA may prescribe Schedule 2 to 5 control substances to patients for whom they have not conducted an in-person medical evaluation. If the following conditions are met, number one, the prescription is issued for a legitimate medical purpose by a physician or the practitioner acting in the usual course of professional practice. Number two, the telemedicine communication is conducted using an audiovisual, real-time, two-way interactive communication system. Number three, the physician or other practitioner is acting in accordance with applicable state and federal laws. The exception and conditions do not allow the use of telephone, audio-only visits when prescribing controlled substances. If the physician or other prescriber has previously conducted an in-person medical evaluation of the patient, the physician or other prescriber may issue a prescription for a controlled substance after communication with the patient by telemedicine or any other means, regardless of whether a public health emergency has been declared, and as long as the prescription is issued for a legitimate medical purpose. The physician or other prescriber is acting in the usual course of his or her professional practice, and the physician or other prescriber is acting in accordance with applicable federal and state laws. Governor Ducey issued the Executive Order 2020-15 on March 25th, 2020, waiving the requirement of physical examination before prescribing. The order states no Arizona regulatory board shall enforce any statute, rule or regulation that would require a medical professional who is licensed by that board and who is authorized to write prescriptions to conduct an in-person examination of a patient prior to the issuance of a prescription. When prescribing, document the patient's clinical history, current signs and symptoms, diagnosis or possible diagnosis, and other information needed to identify potential risks to propose treatment before prescribing. The information collected and documented by the physician or healthcare professional should support the appropriateness of and indications and safety considerations for prescriptions. Check the laws of your state board of medicine before you prescribe for a patient without seeing them. And above all, ask yourself the question that although controlled substance prescription without an in-person visit is currently wavered, is it appropriate to prescribe virtually? Network neutrality was a phrase coined in 2003 to describe a time when certain internet service providers, ISPs, were limiting or restricting access to the internet through devices such as routers and virtual private networks. It was felt at the time that as technologies were developing across the internet, that all ISPs should treat consumers equally and not discriminate through uh, either the service they provided or charges for those services. 
Fast forward to 2015 when the Federal Communications Commission enforced net neutrality protections. This meant that ISPs could not slow or throttle connections and access to online services such as Netflix and demonstrate that they should be the preferred ISP by increasing access over other ISPs. Net neutrality was a political hotspot for years with legal action taken by ISPs against both Bush and Obama administrations. The net neutrality order was overturned in 2017, which freed ISPs to go back to slowing or throttling services. Uh, net neutrality advocates state that this stifles electronic growth and could push some companies out of the market as they cannot afford the service. An ISP or broadband provider might, for example, allow some companies to pay for priority treatment over on broadband networks over other ISPs. Uh, some states have successfully fought the, the net neutrality reversal, but there are still ongoing legal challenges to it. ISPs have promised not to affect services, but the potential is always there. Physicians and policymakers are playing catch up with telehealth technologies right now. I just begin to re recognize that they are, they are essential solutions for keeping potentially infected individuals out of hospitals and doctor's offices. Broadband is essential in ensuring a quality consultation and patient assessment. Limits of virtual technology, although not a known issue that the medical professional liability insurance world is currently dealing with, a potential medical malpractice claim could come from a connectivity uh, or communication issue. Something things to think about, you know, how is the quality of your consultation via, via video, via a, a platform? Is it the patient's connectivity is poor? Is it yours that is poor? Are there delays or lags in the stream during consultation? Was the audio clear? Did the patient clearly understand the physician and vice versa? Did anything interrupt the, the physician's examination, questions that were asked or the physician's thought process? Was the audiovisual technology good enough not to miss physical changes in the patient, such as early clubbing in fingers or early capillary refill changes? wheezing and crepitations, mild cyanosis. And even greater challenge is when patients have chronic and or complex conditions. A plaintiff's attorney will claim that the physician was at fault for allowing the poor video images or audio quality that affect the ability to timely diagnose and treat. It is important that any documentation of the patient encounter um, certainly consists of any issues of uh, connectivity or communication, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Internet downtime, it happens, and it's frustrating at the best of times when, uh, when we're trying to do things on the internet. But during a consultation, that's even more frustrating. Our suggestions are to reschedule or, or use the phone if, an if that is an adequate measure in a patient uh, consultation, assessment, and treatment. HIPAA privacy and security. Back in March, uh, the Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights stated that it would exercise its enforcement discretion and would not impose penalties for non-compliance with the regulatory requirements under the HIPAA rules against covered healthcare providers in connection with a good faith provision of telehealth during the COVID-19 public health emergency. They announced that standard non-public facing platforms such as Skype, Zoom, FaceTime, etc., could be used. By non-public facing, obviously these platforms require an entrance code or password and are only accessible by those who have been invited and logged in. They are, of course, private. 
although non-public facing platforms are still suitable. CMS at the time did state that secure platforms with business associate agreements uh, were preferable if a physician is required additional uh, privacy protection. Uh, I think what they were trying to say at the time was there still needs to be caution about breaches of the PHI and, and HIPAA requirements. Other telemedicine liability issues, credentialing and privileging. Telemedicine physicians require credentialing and privileging when providing services to hospitals, just as they would in, in normal face-to-face -face assessment, treatment, consultations. I'm not going to go into uh, credentialing and privileging too far, but uh, in the past, hospitals relied on privileging by proxy. Uh, these are standards of the Joint Commission utilized to make credentialing and privileging process less burdensome on facilities using, uh, using telehealth, telemedicine. The process allowed the hospital receiving services to accept the distance site where the telemedicine provider is located and then to use that, for that in the hospital's credentialing and privileging decisions. Um, it kept down on time and duplicated work and expense um, could reduce onboarding and go lifetime from several months to several days. CMS didn't particularly like that idea back at the, back in the day, but they have since adopted a very similar process to privileging by proxy. And as I say, I'm not going to go into too much. It's it's too much to talk about now. But uh, the bottom line is, please ensure that uh, you check with the hospital that you have credentialing and privileging in place before providing telemedicine services. A care coordinating physician is responsible for reviewing the overall management of patients' multiple conditions, encouraging compliance and preventative measures, making recommendations for additional referrals or changes in specialist management, and resolving possible conflicts in treatment recommendations from other physicians. This is obviously a task that's often taken care of by primary care physicians or even family physicians. And this doesn't change when using telemedicine services. You know, it must include care coordination with the patient's medical home and our existing treating physicians, which includes at minimum identifying the patient's existing medical home and treating physicians and providing those physicians with a copy of the medical record. Documentation. There are several rules regarding documentation. Uh, in telemedicine visits and obviously this should take place in exactly the same format as it would in any face-to-face -face encounter. We suggest that the encounter is thoroughly documented including all communications with or about the patient and in review or ordering of tests, results, follow-up recommendations, coordination of care etc. Document the informed consent process and the confirmation including that the patient agrees to and understands the limits of confidentiality when communicating via electronic medium. And then it may be determined that telemedicine is not appropriate for the diagnosis and treatment of the condition. Document if there are any technical issues with the visits such as poor internet connectivity or signal quality, camera or device malfunction, patient's inability to manage technical aspects of the examination uh, and any uh, peripheral device unavailability. Informed consent versus informed refusal, we've already discussed consent, but also ensure that you document any informed refusal. Perhaps patients may not want a virtual consult if they need to come in or refuse a telemedicine visit. Did you discuss this with them and document the risks, benefits and alternatives? Can they be scheduled first or last? Can their appointment be delayed if it is routine? 
patient's ability to participate in telemedicine. Healthcare providers have a duty to provide appropriate auxiliary aids and services where necessary to ensure that communication with people who are deaf, hard of hearing, visually impaired is as effective as communication with others. Please take into consideration any ADA requirements that have to be factored into uh, telemedicine visits. As always, any person with a disability should not be treated differently than a person without a disability. There is ADA guidance on effective communication uh, and that document states that the key to deciding what aid or service is needed to communicate effectively, again the emphasis is on effective communication, uh, is to consider the nature, length, complexity and context of the communication as well as the person's normal methods of communication. Uh, it adds that entities are required to give primary consideration to and to honour the choice of aid or service requested by the person who has a communication disability unless they can demonstrate that another equally effective means of communication is available or the use of means chosen would result in a fundamental alteration or an undue burden to the physician or practice. Again what we suggest is that initially assess the individual's needs as well as the benefits and risks of using technology to provide services. Perhaps some of these services are simply just not appropriate. However, everything should be explored. Communicate with the patient prior to the telemedicine visits, see if they have any needs, try and assess what their usual methods of communication are. Consider the product services and, and environmental factors that both the patient and the physician require to provide effective services and effective communication and the barriers that may exist and need to be overcome. Does the patient rely on any equipment, telephones, captioning and assistive technology? Can these be integrated into a telemedicine platform? Are there any other software programs and apps available? Does the patient rely on another person? What's that other person's role? Document if any person is present uh, in the consultation and their role, regardless of disability. Work with external agencies who can give advice on products, check with telemedicine networks, that's another option. Seek advice from the ADA if you're, if you're struggling to find appropriate services. The patient's mental capacity should of course be assessed as equally as well as you would do in a face-to-face -face consultation. Something else to be aware of is uh, patients with limited English proficiency. Do you have a qualified medical interpreter that can be with you for consultations? I know there are companies that provide qualified medical interpreters uh, through the internet that can access your uh, telemedicine consult as it happens. Uh, just something to be aware of. And of course, patients may be unable to participate if they have no phone, no internet, no computers, no smartphone, and no minutes on their plans. Patient privacy. Physicians are encouraged to notify patients about telemedicine platforms being used during the pandemic and that these third-party applications potentially introduce privacy risks. And providers should enable all available encryption and privacy modes when using such application. Hackers are able to access a patient's medical data, especially if the patient accesses telemedicine on a public network or via an unencrypted channel. Other privacy issues from the, uh, the virtual consult and, and from a HIPAA privacy standpoint, ask the patient that there's anyone in the room with them. If there is, is that person someone they want or need to be there? Oh, I had an interesting question uh, we had this week, um, again about privacy. It's an interesting scenario. 
Is a chaperone required if a patient needs to disrobe for part of the exam? Again, standards haven't quite been established for this, but as in personal care, face-to-face -face care, in-office care, the answer is sort of context-specific, but where possible, we would suggest that a chaperone is involved. Again, it's important that if you can't provide a chaperone, if there isn't one available, that full documentation of the, the event is, uh, is thoroughly carried out. Patient distraction, patients are distracted. Physicians must rely on patient self-reports during telemedicine sessions. This may require clinicians to ask more questions to ensure that they, they get a comprehensive health history and make that clinical decision based on that. If a patient leaves out an important symptom that might have been noticeable during inpatient care, uh, this can compromise treatment, as I state. Perhaps it's you know, a good idea to when, when you have a consultation with a patient uh, through a platform that uh, you ask them if they're, they're, you know, they're likely not to be disturbed or if they can just make sure that they're not disturbed. Uh, don't answer the phone, don't answer the doorbell, whatever you need to do, but just something to ensure that you keep their attention for that full consultation. If you, you think you've missed something, please ask them to repeat. Uh, legal standard of care. What is the legal standard of care for, for telemedicine? Well, there aren't any specific cases on this and there aren't any specific challenges to standard of care. Although it has been stated that the standard of care for telemedicine is the same as in-person care. Uh, and if a problem cannot be adequately evaluated or addressed by telemedicine, it's required that provider make arrangements for that escalation of the care. We'll talk about escalation a little bit later on. Professional liability insurance coverage. Again, please check your coverage with your medical professional liability carrier for geographical coverage. And obviously just check with them if you are starting a, a telemedicine process up, if it's new, um, please again, let them know that you are doing so. Physician-patient relationships and patient understanding of risks of telemedicine. States and the American Medical Association set several principles for telemedicine regarding the physician's duty to the patient and vice versa. The organization specifies that uh, a relationship must exist prior to the tele telemedicine consultation established through a face-to-face -face examination or a consultation with another physician who has ongoing relationship with the patient. The provider should determine ahead of time what needs to be included in a doctor-patient relationship before the telemedicine consultations occur. Although this recommendation doesn't explicitly describe what is meant by a face-to-face -face examination, the AMA have suggested that the face-to-face -face encounter could occur in person or virtually through real-time audio and video technology. Regardless, a valid patient-physician relationship must be established prior to providing services. Cyber liability risks and liability insurance coverage. Please check with your medical professional liability carrier about coverage for cyber liability risks. And also just to check that you have the right level of coverage, the coverage is, that's very important. At the moment, there haven't been any recorded hacks into systems, but you know, this is always possible. It's always possible that someone will hack. We've had Zoom bombing. Uh, and I'm sure before long we will be hearing about episodes where hackers have got into uh, patient consultations via telemedicine. 
Uh, there are ways, technical ways to reduce this, um, passwords, etc. but uh, you may never eliminate the risk completely. Physician and practice staff training. Are all staff and colleagues aware of how to use the telemedicine platform, how to do it, and how to assess patients accurately through this? Can they describe to a patient how to accurately take their pulse, how to weigh themselves and when to weigh themselves? How are they capturing their blood pressure? Uh, how do they show you their capillary refill? Uh, can they examine their own abdomens for tenderness? As I mentioned previously, um, is the video stream, stream sufficient to view the patient for accurate assessment? I will go on to discuss website manner and, and escalation as, as I mentioned previously a little bit later on. Billing and reimbursement. Check with the patient virtually that they have health insurance coverage via their insurance cards or documents. Of course, this, this may have already been processed by the office. Uh, use the correct CPT codes and modifiers. Uh, it's worthwhile checking with payers that the coverage they provide is extant. Uh, and if there are any changes in modalities, for instance, do they still allow phone consults um, or has that gone out the window? The federal government announced a series of policy changes that broadened Medicare coverage during the, uh, the public health emergency. They wavered things like no geographic restrictions for patients and providers. All healthcare providers are eligible to bill, bill Medicare, can bill for telehealth services. There are cost sharing uh, situations. Providers can reduce or waive patient cost sharing. Modalities, telehealth services only require a telephone. As I say, you know, that may change as the pandemic moves on or closes. More risk reduction strategies. Are the risks and benefits of telemedicine in person, in -person appointments? Even during the pandemic, the dilemma for physicians may have been, should a patient be seen in person or can they continue to be seen virtually? Deciding whether to bring a patient into the office can rely on the need for a physical assessment or because there are barriers to effective communication using telemedicine. I think first things to do is have you performed a patient risk assessment and documented that risk assessment. Are they appropriate to bring in? At what stage should you bring them in? Again, there haven't been any legal challenges yet in this area. The standard care is the same for both modes of assessment and treatment. We talked about escalation. Do you have an escalation process in place to define when to turn a virtual consult into an in-person one? How do you risk assess this process? I'm certain that, uh, that many physicians out there have this in place from a clinical judgment perspective. But if you're in a, a multi-physician practice, does everyone subscribe to this? Are all, all of your providers, colleagues versed in escalation protocols? Do these need to be developed? Do you have telemedicine workflows? Are staff trained in them? We mentioned uh, website manner is a very popular term at the moment, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. How do you present yourself during a virtual consultation? Is your settings suitable, your background, privacy, uh, no office traffic? Do you identify yourself? Do you wear an ID badge? Do you ask the patient to identify themselves? Perhaps asking them to view their driver's license, asking them where they're located, asking them uh, you know, if, they, if there's uh, any other patients around in the room with them. And is that person someone they want or need to be there? Asking the patient, are they comfortable with this process? Uh, did you go through the consent process again and gain their consent? Informed consent, informed refusal. 
It's important that uh, physicians use words effectively and deliberately with patients. I document the patient's response, make sure they understand. Perhaps using something like teach back is worthwhile to ensure that, uh, that what you've told the patient has been uh, enforced in them and they can repeat it back to you. Another interesting um, process is that, did you have, do you have someone uh, to room the patient virtually prior to your medical assessment and to ensure that they are able to effectively use equipment? Also, that person could be somebody who at the end of the consultation takes over and uh, makes sure the patient doesn't have any questions about technology or other issues of billing, etc. Something else that we've spoke about, I'll reiterate, can you guarantee the quality of the virtual assessment? Would that meet the standard of care? Are you certain that you did not miss vital information given to you by the patient? Continuity of care. A patient should be able to obtain follow-up care or information from the physician or the physician's designee with uh, whom he or she has had an encounter using telemedicine. Physicians must document the telemedicine encounter and uh, make it easily available to the patient and subject to the patient's consent, any other healthcare provider identified by the patient. That moves into centralized telemedicine documentation. Have you explored the possibilities of, of how you're going to share this information, uh, the assessment, any results, any labs with other physicians and uh, healthcare professionals out there? Telemedicine devices are often traditional medical devices that have been given uh, connectivity or properties so that they may interact with other devices. Defining telemedicine products can be uh, difficult because the FDA does not recognize uh, certain categories of products that are considered telemedicine products. Remote patient monitoring is a, another issue. Uh, using digital technologies, it allows the patient to engage in their healthcare, allows the physician to gather and track real-time data for assessment and treatment purposes. Uh, data can also be transmitted to other specialists and facilities for further consultation and for coordination of care. During the, uh, the public health emergency, clinicians can provide RPM services to new and established patients for both acute and chronic conditions. Uh, for example, uh, remote patient monitoring can be used to monitor patients' O2 saturation levels using pulse oximetry. Responsibilities for monitoring equipment. Will you ask the uh, patient to obtain their equipment from a medical equipment provider? Or will you provide the equipment to the patient? And what quality control processes do you have in place to ensure that the equipment is calibrated and maintained accurately? Again, whether the patient or physician purchases it, it, it all depends on who is responsible for maintaining it. Often a patient will go to a medical equipment provider and they will carry out that calibration and maintenance. Whatever the, the process is, it's important to have a quality control process with, uh, with these uh, devices simply because accuracy can be an issue. Devices should have software approved by the FDA. Are they credible and accurate? Is the data valid and reliable? Uh, physicians and others will be relying on it. Uh, can the patient bring the equipment into the office to demonstrate how they use it? So again, you can be assured that uh, there's at least a good chance that the data will be valid and reliable. It is advised to remain alert to state and federal guidance updates on, uh, on app, mobile health and RPM requirements. Some considerations for uh, remote patient monitoring. Can it integrate with your current EMR or EHR platform? 
or even with your telemedicine platform. Uh, patient selection, are they able to use technology and adhere to monitoring requirements? Do they have access to high-speed internet? Do you need to buy the equipment or will they be responsible for buying the equipment? Will you need additional software? Is the health plan payment for remote patient monitoring equipment and services? Um, who's going to provide the equipment delivery, setup and patient education? Have you gained patient informed consent for the RPM? It's important to have written office policies and procedures, quality control, again, who's looking after the quality control of the RPM? Patient education on the equipment and maintenance, as, as I mentioned, is, is important. Who receives the data in the office and, and how do they store that data? Uh, who reads the data and when? How to escalate patients' needs following data analysis? What if something shows up on the data? What do you do? Are staff aware of their roles and responsibilities on this? And finally, on this uh, RPM, devices may be liable to cyber attacks and data breaches. Patients should be warned of the risk. And as always, this should be documented. Mobile health apps, federal laws, broadly, uh, there are four categories of mobile health apps, information apps, uh, diagnostic apps, control apps, and adapter apps. Not going to go into those at the moment. Apps that provide patient information to physicians uh, also, must also abide by federal laws protecting personal data and should demonstrate that they are based on best medical practices. The Federal Trade Commission, FTC, in conjunction with the Office of Civil Rights, HSS Office of National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, the ONC, and the FDA are all involved in uh, mobile health app regulation, but only for a very small number. Uh, they have provided guidelines for app developers to ensure they meet HIPAA, privacy and security and technology requirements. Physicians who recommend mobile health apps should be aware that they face potential liability if claims made by app developers are fraudulent. The HHS also suggests, suggests that an app developer may be a business associate if they are creating or offering the app on behalf of a covered entity or one of the covered entity's contractors. And in that case, they are required to comply with certain provisions of HIPAA rules. The HHS has, has a new website with lots of useful information on, on mHealth apps, well worth a visit. Just wrapping it up with the future of telemedicine. Undoubtedly, patient engagement has been altered perhaps for all time due to the public health emergency. The mid to long-term future of telemedicine is largely unknown. Uh, and it may depend on reimbursement, temporary changes being made permanent, and the continuation of the pandemic and social distancing. It's uh, difficult to envision its demise going forward. Patients may still need education about telemedicine, telehealth and its values, such as not needing to travel, no waiting room, decreasing the risk of virus transmission to them. Some may still want or need in-person consultations. Do you know what they want and can you provide that? Processes, while telemedicine may be a new challenge for some physicians and practices, there are many processes that need to be developed or fine-tuned. Uh, ensure that you have protocols and workflows in place to cover telemedicine practice. Ensure that staff are educated and they're trained into using platforms and how to talk to patients. Remember website manner. Technology. Don't jump in when purchasing a telemedicine platform. Uh, be wary of signing long-term contracts for, for the applications, programs, or providers. There's lots of research going on right now, and there are new products expected soon.
what platform do you need? You may need to seek a robust virtual care platform with embedded specialty features to enhance virtual care. When you do this, does this platform need to be scalable to the entire organization? What do you need on it? Scheduling, waiting room management, video exam, discharge, billing, reporting. Is it secure and HIPAA compliant? Uh, some of the options are through EMR and EHR vendors. I obviously may be available within the EMR system you have in place. It's important in all through this that there are business associate agreements in place for HIPAA purposes. It's worthwhile having a business attorney review any contracts to make sure the scope of the contract fits the needs of your practice. Reimbursement and eliminating barriers. There have been early signs that reimbursement may be scaled back somewhat, which may be something that we've expected. Several private health insurers will no longer fully pay for virtual visits under certain circumstances. Uh, effectively, it's reinstituting costs for patients. Uh, United Healthcare Anthem ended a virtual visit benefit that had been expanded to many members during COVID, through which it was covering the full cost of visits without any cost to patients. This was even for individuals who were seeing in-network providers virtually for medical issues not related to COVID-19. They are now requiring patients to pay for out-of-pocket costs such as co-pays and deductibles. Telemedicine agencies and networks are lobbying state and federal government on a number of issues regarding reimbursement and other telemedicine issues that need development and cons consolidation beyond the pandemic, eliminating barriers and making developments permanent. Some areas being discussed are payment parity, uh, what should be reimbursed, such as phone communication, expansion of provider types, the removal of location limits, e.g. originating site home versus other areas the patient can be located, terminology and definitions of telemedicine, telehealth, licensing, and removing regulatory burdens, such in the areas of prescribing. Ah, here are some telemedicine resources uh, for your perusal. And with that, Sue and I would like to thank you and we are open for any questions you may have.